All right, guys, I'm going to give a little bit of a disclaimer or some notes up front here that I will probably do a little bit often now because uh, one time somebody complained that having been on our call like this, uh, they they were surprised that this was shared publicly and they didn't like that their name or their face was on here. So being part of our Friday research review, which is open to the public, we do record these and we share them not only internally with our coaches and our company and our clients, but now we have a playlist on our Diet Doc YouTube channel. So we have, gosh, I mean, it's got to be close to 50 or at least, you know, more than 40 of these research reviews now that our communication director is, is piling into that. So if you're ever interested in uh, what I'm going to call a cursory or superficial view of different studies, specific research pieces, sometimes meta-analyses. Uh, we don't typically just go through a topic as a broad survey. We, we try to zero in on one thing. So every single thing we cover, as today is a good example, is usually one study that has a very specific context. So it becomes uh, an important part of a puzzle but I do take a lot of the bigger themes in nutrition and weight loss and come back to them from time to time. So we get a, a more complete picture. Uh, I don't stick on them for too long at a time, like food timing. We may go two or three deep in the series and leave it alone for a while. But if you go back to that YouTube playlist, the Diet Doc YouTube playlist, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll find some really good stuff there on different topics. Uh, this particular topic, the science of food timing or meal timing, it's, it's one of those, I think you guys are going to, um, you're going to come back and see, you know, all of the different chronological influences. It seems like every generation or so, we, we hear somebody explain something, maybe becomes popular in cultural reporting, and we decide, ah, there's the answer. We got that nailed down. You know, just like in the 90s, it was eat, eat six times a day, eat protein every meal, eat every three hours. And then people started thinking like, hmm, I don't know. And uh, all of a sudden, 20 years later, we're into intermittent fasting and time-restricted feeding and things like that. So meal timing, you're going to see a couple influences, I think, on even why people want to study this. And there are some conflicting studies. And in research, that's, I hope, something you expect, uh, especially currently, because there is so much political ire tossed around regarding science and the scientific method, it's, it's a great time to remind people that science isn't science because it has all the answers. Science is science because it has none of the answers and it's searching for the answers. So every single field, every single scientist at some point says, this is what we know right now. This is what the preponderance of evidence we have currently shows in this context. And so it, there is always a, a reason to look at it skeptically, look for holes in the study as I try to do. But I think it's also important to look at the differences between the way things are studied and looked at. So this particular study uh, is, is looking at, uh, first of all, this from the context that kind of like something we talked about last week, uh, when, you know, I, I made a quote by Kevin Hall, the nutrition director at the NIH, and he said, 
everybody in science currently wants to say that a low carb diet enhances fat loss in metabolic capacity. And he said, all of the evidence is actually to the contrary. And this particular study uh, is, is kind of answering the question that, that it's currently popular to say that meal timing really doesn't matter. Some people say it does. Some people say it doesn't. You have people trying to counter the old axiom that we should all eat a big breakfast and then a, a smaller dinner. You've heard mantras and so forth like that in the past. And they, they recognize that the, the literature kind of shows the opposite, that there really is a difference. And they wanted to see that. I picked this study, and you're going to see that at least in, in this region of the world, they kind of got on a roll. Once, once they unlocked something here, they started digging deeper and deeper. I'm going to show you a couple other studies that they were involved in. But um, anyway, the, the difference in timing of feeding and weight regulation, rhythmic feeding appears to be the major synchronizer for peripheral oscillators. Thus, unusual feeding time can produce a disruption in the circadian rhythm uh, by inducing internal desynchronization through decoupling of peripheral oscillators from the central clock, the super chiasmatic nucleus. And you guys have heard this before. We talked about the fact that if you uh, lose sleep, that the, the suprachiasmatic nucleus of the hypothalamus directly has a connection to the retina and those, those sleep and wake cycles tied evolutionary to dark and light day and night really do matter. It can not only affect hunger and cravings, but it can directly affect things like, like insulin sensitivity, blood sugar, glucose disposal, so one of the things we talked about this week in our normal live chats was how the that lack of sleep, actually, I don't think we did. I talked about that in Boston. It's going to come up. We're going to talk about it next Monday. But the fact that just directly having not enough sleep, less than five or five and a half hours, somewhere south of six hours, the very next day, you have up to 50% complete disruption in blood sugar levels. Blood sugar levels can just skew higher insulin sensitivity goes down just because you had one crummy night of sleep. So that's where all this happens. It's all tied to the hypothalamus on that circadian rhythm cycle. This is where I, I think something is really interesting. Uh, look at that second sentence. New data suggests that there's a temporal component in the regulation of adipose tissue function. So uh, this circadian clock, there, there are actually genes, and they name the genes in this, the genes in the study, you know, super long alphabetical type names and numbers, almost like a serial code. And there is a, a clock type gene that they talk about. And not just is it related to the retina and how it perceives light and day, your brain as it's, you know, even subconscious through your, your eyelids if you're asleep. But the fact that this is that there are genes directly influenced by body fat cells when it comes to that same circadian rhythm. So fat mobilization is directly affected by sleep and therefore timing. So this was all part of why they wanted to study this. They, they knew this happened just in physiological, um, you know, known, known research. But they started to see some other things coming out in, in other studies, and they just thought, you know, let's, let's construct a study model that controls for everything, uh, 
except for this. And let's just see if if one if we can observe anything in 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 how this is going to play out. So let me let me get into that the actual study model because it, it's one of those you know I, I try to pick things that I think are interesting and unique for us to look at. Um, this is in Spain, so this is a group a specific weight loss type clinic and. Uh, you know, gastric bypass type type surgical interventions are done there. Cognitive behavioral therapy is done there. There's a there's a group that really takes this seriously. I think it's very much akin to our you know NIH trying to figure out obesity and, and improvement. So five so 420 students. They actually had about almost 600, and they qualified them pretty tightly. They didn't want anybody with metabolic disorders or or chronic disease or anything like that that would skew this data. So, so they, they ended up with 420, almost a 50-50 split male and female, average age 42, average BMI 31, so moderately overweight. Um, it was a 20-week intervention, then with a 20-week maintenance monitoring phase. So we, I, I've shown you guys studies like this in the past where I think the longer-term data is important and how people respond after that intervention is important. So this is another one that I, I really liked for that reason. But here's how they constructed the intervention. Because this was a very cognitive behavioral therapy-based clinic, they, they wanted all of those 420 subjects to have 60-minute therapy sessions, which is related to nutrition. They wanted to just give them information. Here's proper eating. Here's what it does for you. They're probably covering all kinds of things uh, because they're going through this weekly. So it's so very, very, very heavy on the support in the education. And I think that also gives you a nice positive um, you know, sense of accountability. You're in these meetings with other people. Uh, once they had met their goal weight, sorry, I have a little, little typo there. Um, so they're into maintenance. Then they started with biweekly meetings and then monthly to roll it out to, to kind of, you know, wean them off. But these are the four components of the, the study or, or that what they were really looking at. So first of all, it was done with a Mediterranean type diet principles. That's what was taught. What's important for you guys to realize is they gave them, uh, you know, per some testing, they, they did all kinds of metabolic testing then they said, here's what would be appropriate for you. If you wanted to follow good, healthy, sound nutrition principles, specifically Mediterranean. So, you know, that, that just means kind of balanced. You know, you're going to have enough protein. You're going to have some carbs. You're going to have some fat. Fat is typically going to be high in omega-3s like Mediterranean regional diet would be. Um, they gave them tons of nutrition education through these sessions uh, they encouraged moderate physical activity, and then the cognitive behavioral therapy just kind of rolled through the whole uh, 10-month uh, process, five months of direct intervention, five months of monitoring after. But they didn't say, you must eat this amount of food. They didn't say, you're in this group, or you're in this group, and you're going to eat this, or you're going to eat this. They just wanted them to have the information and then see by by daily journaling, what they ate, how they ate, and then they did tons and tons of testing, both biometrically and analytically. So again, no advice given to the patients with regard to the food timing or daily energy intake distribution. It's going to be, this is, you know, this is good, solid nutrition advice. Go forth and do the best you can. You're, you're here at this weight loss clinic because you want to lose weight. Uh, 
So, you know, go do your best. We're going to have these therapeutic sessions to, to help guide you. Um, but, but you're going to do it on your own. You're not going to track on my fitness pal. You're not going to have a certain macro goal range. We're not going to tell you to eat at certain meal intervals. You're on your own. So interesting format, right? I mean, a lot of times that, you know, with an observational study, you do want people to do certain things and then you want to compare, you want to measure this to this here. It's, it's almost like people in the wild. Let's just see what they do. So they measured body comp. Of course, they did a complete blood count. So they're looking at, you know, cholesterol, blood sugar. They were, you know, monitoring blood pressure. They specifically wanted to look at the appetite hormones, leptin and ghrelin. Uh, they, with blood work, they were looking at DNA level stuff in these people. So specifically that clock, it's actually, you know, kind of all caps, C-L-O-C-K is the, the code name for that particular gene. Uh, they, they wanted to know sleep, you know, you're going to record how much you're sleeping every, every night. And then they were going to, you know, do, do run this all through heavy, heavy uh, analytics. So here are some of the results. With energy intake and distribution very similar, and I'm gonna show you guys some charts. It's gonna be hard to read, but I'll try and point some stuff out. It was exceptionally, almost eerily, weirdly similar. Where it, and when, you, when you have 420 subjects, and, and you could have a lot of a lot of standard deviation between you know the highs and the lows and any single variable. Almost everything was eerily the same, which first of all tells me that this education component was really strong. These subjects were getting a lot of buy-in. Um, one of the things that so so this being a European type community. It was also interesting that everybody with, with very little deviation ate in kind of a three meal pattern. They had breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And the average breakfast time was 9 a.m. The average dinner time is 9.30 p.m., which that's, that's going to come back a little bit to at least my discussion and how this would fit because I'm asleep by 9.30 p.m. and these people are just eating dinner at 9.00. So when you're talking about sleep-wake cycles, I think you could make an argument that it kind of depends, you know, what your natural day is like. But the deviations that I'm going to show you are just oddly insignificant. Like everybody was almost identical, except in one thing. 200, almost, almost, almost an even split of people seem to have very early lunches or very late lunches. So the average lunch, the median time for lunch was around three in the afternoon, but some people were very, very early. Some people were much, much later than that. And that's where everything changes. So uh, e even things like, like sleep, energy expenditure, activity, appetite, hormones, None of that changed. I mean, across the board, we, we could, these researchers could not say that there were, you know, here, these variables are correlated very heavily and these are not. Almost everything was identical. So let's, let's start looking at a couple of these things. Um, the things that were different, that one gene for, um, you know, the, the clock that, you know, that is related to what's happening in adipose tissue, a minor allele associated with obesity being expressed in accordance with that gene 
was significantly higher or, or ha they, they had it in higher amounts, that particular gene expression among those people who were late eaters. So we're gonna come at the end of this study to at least one question about causality, the chicken or the egg. Uh, the people who ate a later lunch, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of give you the, the conclusion of the study right now, and then we can discuss it. Everybody had almost the exact same calorie level, the distribution of how much they ate for lunch, dinner, and breakfast, the distribution of protein, carbs, and fat. When I show you these, you're, you're just, it's going to blow your mind how similar they are. But the, the one thing that was different, again, was that some people ate a much earlier lunch, some people later lunch. The people who ate the later lunch, they, they lost body fat 22.2% slower. The people who ate the earlier lunch so again, randomized over 420 people, you have every kind of metabolic capacity, different ages, different genders. And yet when you run that through statistical analysis, the only thing that they could find that correlates to uh, the actual outcome was that even on the same amount of calories, you know, per metabolic capacity, the, the early lunch eaters lost 22.2% more body fat, which is substantial. On an isocaloric study, when you could be eating the same amount of calories this week versus next week versus the next week versus the next week, and if you just change when you eat those calories, you could lose weight almost 25% faster, that's something to sign up for. That's something to say, I'll, I'll take that deal. That's the meal plan I want. I'll make it work. But the other thing is that those late eaters had this gene association with obesity. And so the question is, does having that gene expression naturally make people eat later? Or is it more epigenetic where after years and years and maybe decades of eating later, eating a lot of food at night up against that circadian rhythm of having higher insulin levels as you go to sleep, does that just express that gene? Scientifically, that's more likely. Because we know we all have the capacity, the ability to express certain genes per our genetics. But as you hear a lot of times, especially in the, the realm of cancer and so forth, it takes certain contexts, certain circumstances to express that gene. So we always tell people, if you do this, if you exercise and you don't smoke and you stay lean, like you may have that worst particular type of gene potential for a particular type of cancer. But if you do all these things, that gene never gets expressed and you never get that disease. Similarly here, a very logical hypothesis would be that just eating later starts expressing that gene, which makes you even hungrier and, and just tips the balance. Remember, as I said, just losing sleep completely disrupts the entire metabolic continuum in your body blood sugar levels aren't controlled as well. Insulin glucagon aren't controlled as well. Blood glucose disposal isn't controlled as well. And this, this is in that category where you're talking about all of this being controlled by the, the hypothalamus as it relates to the circadian rhythms, not just as a function of your brain, but knowing that there are connections to that in your actual fat cells. So inside every fat cell you now, we now understand that there is a connection to 
eating cycles with wake and sleep cycles. So let me get into some of this, this data. This is what this looks like. If you could see, I'm going to look over here on my big screen as well. Um, you know, as people start off the weeks of treatment, you can see it as it gets deeper and deeper toward week 20 of the intervention. That's where over time, the people who were eating more of their calories at lunch, breakfast didn't seem to matter. Dinner didn't seem to matter. It's just the people who eat their, their lunch later, they started losing weight slower. And I, and I think I wrote this on a slide I may have passed. You guys may have picked up on it and read it. But the people who ate the later lunch, one of the things that drove that later lunch is the fact that they would more often than not skip breakfast. They would more often than not, if they would eat breakfast, they would eat even a little bit later. So when you see that the median time for breakfast was 9 a.m., the people who skewed a little later there tended to eat a little bit later lunch and therefore even a little bit of a later dinner. So it's not just lunch. I don't want anybody to walk away saying, hey, I just have to make sure that my lunch is early and I'll lose more body fat. It, it's skewing the whole amount of calorie intake just earlier into the day. And I'm going to show you some other studies that confirm that in different, different models. So this one here, let me see if I can pull it up on my larger screen here. Get the same one. I guess, I guess you guys can probably see this one. This one isn't bad. Um, so, so look across the board here at just, you know, total fat loss. So 8.7 kilograms for the early eaters, 8.8 kilograms in the, the, the late eaters. That's, um, you know, kind of, I think that's, that's right off the bat. Um, let, let me actually, I'm going to pull this up here. I want to make sure I've got the right information for you guys. I want to confuse you. Um, I'm on the wrong table. I want to show you guys this a little out of order for a reason here. So third time's a charm. The characteristics. Why am I not getting to that one? Sorry, here, guys. They have these hidden inside. They have their graphs hidden inside uh, charts. Okay, here it is. So um, this particular, so this table is the differences in total weight loss, percentage of weight loss from initial weight and weekly weight loss rate between late and early eaters, depending on breakfast, lunch, and dinner uh, times. And I have those medians there. So where was the big difference here? I was trying to show you guys. Jill, are you wanting, are you meaning to show this? Because we only see the PowerPoint slide. 
Um, no, no, no. I'm, I'm looking at the same PowerPoint slide. I'm just looking at it on a bigger screen. Um, so I wanted to point some things out to you. Well, what they did here, they went through a certain time interval and they were showing that as the, the body fat loss kind of started to spew apart a little bit. Um, so total weekly weight loss, uh, when, you, when you look at, and I guess I can compare it here for you guys, um, you know, look at these numbers here, total weekly weight loss and so forth. Um, you know, the, the late eaters are starting to lose less and less. But I, th I think what I really wanted to show you, and I, I knew this was going to be the one that was harder to see, is how these different variables are so um, completely similar. So let me pull this one up so I can show you guys both at the same time. Um, I'll do this. I'll make sure I'm matched to you guys. So again, tiny, tiny print here. And, and I think if I even tried to blow this up for you guys here, nope, I can't do it because it's in presentation mode. Um, so I'm going to go through these kind of line by line. If you can see it, you can, uh, you can follow along. So with the, the time of the main meal, the, this particular, the top of the chart, it, you, we're just looking at the lunch. So about 200 people were eating well before three in the afternoon and about 212 people after, which means a few people were just kind of in the middle. And uh, the average person who was eating before or after, so we're looking at this group with 420 people, you have almost perfectly 200 people in each of these camps. The average age on each side, because in a, in a good study, you want things to be very randomized. You, well, I shouldn't say that. You, you just want to see what happens. You're, you're going to interpret the data no matter what you get, and you're going to have to make your decisions based on what you get. That's, that's the whole basis of science. But rarely do you find, with so many variables, absolutely no correlation except for one or two things. So the average age of these two different groups, and they were not divided into a study group and a control group. This was after the whole 10-month study, and they showed, okay, what can we discern from this? The only big difference was the people who were eating late and early lunches, but then they both groups tended to be an exact average of 42 years old. They were a 45-55% split of population compared to almost 50-50, so it just skewed a little bit that the later uh, eaters were 55% women. Uh, initial body mass was almost identical. Uh, it, 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 I mean, it's just, it's really stunning. Body fat percentage was almost identical. Triglyceride levels were almost identical. Total cholesterol levels were almost identical. You're talking 183.5 to 185.5. Uh, HDL, LDL, it's, it's just so bizarre. Um, even when you get into things like leptin and ghrelin, there just wasn't that much difference. And so had there been some kind of a difference, if one of these things would have been really crazy, even sleep duration, the average of 7.3 hours of sleep versus 7.25 hours of sleep down to minutes. And so you would say, okay, these people, one group lost 22 or 23% more body fat, but yet everything they did was perfectly identical you know, what was the thing? And, and of course, like I said, the, the thing was the fact that they just ate their calories earlier. So let me jump back up here to uh, 
to this one and get the, the right one pulled up here for me. I'm still missing the mark here. I should have had these pulled up in all kinds of different browsers here. And that is showing 52. Okay, here I finally got it. So the characteristics of the population during treatment. Um, so, so this gets into the actual food intake. So again, if you guys can, can follow along there, you'll see that uh, the, uh, the people who ate early in the day are the, the left. People who ate uh, later in the day are here on the right. So the average calories per day, 1426 to 1388 that's within a percentage point or two. The amount of the, the grams of fat eaten per day, 53 grams to 51. Carbohydrates, 171 to 167. Protein, 67, 65. You know, the percentage of these things, again, 33%, 33%, 48%, 48%, 19%, It's just bizarre. I mean, it's, it's, it's so, it, it's interesting how, uh, you, how these people were, either instructed that this is what's good or this is what's expected of you, but you know, there's no way of telling you guys have to, you know, go, go do this and, and you're going to do the journaling every day, which again, we know self-reported is not always uh, the most accurate, but the, the one thing that comes out here is with all of that stability, um, even down to the lunch, you can see here that, that almost 600 calories a day for lunch, uh, and only 16 and 15% of the calories were, were eaten, um, you know, at breakfast. And let me see here, where was dinner distribution of daily energy? Um, I wonder if that's on another chart. Anyway, 40% of their food intake in this Mediterranean style European type diet. Let me make sure there's not one more thing I want to show you there. Um, 40% of their whole food consumption was at that midday meal. Um, I had always thought that it was a little bit more normal to have it in the evening meal, but um, I guess not. So as I just painfully dragged you through looking at some of that data that, that show that, that all of those intake and the dietary composition were, were so, as they said, quote, surprisingly similar, that, that the late eaters, as I mentioned, had a, had less energetic breakfast. So that's where they just ate a little bit less. They skip breakfast more often. Um, already mentioned all that, but now let's, let's actually get to this discussion point. And I'm going to bring in a couple other studies that have addressed this in a couple different ways. And then I want to talk about particularly your, um, your experience, because I, I certainly have a couple experiences that I can now retrospectively tie to this that I don't think I would have prior. So studies show the reversal of the feeding rhythm causes adverse metabolic effects. And, and what, they, what they consider the, the feeding rhythm is that once you have awakened, so you've been fasting all night, 
it's very natural for mammals to go look for food. Um, if you're a, a fox or a squirrel or a, a mouse or a, or a primate, you know, that's typically what you do. You wake up, you immediately start hunting and gathering. So that's always been part of our evolutionary physiology. The reversal of that is in modern times where nobody's necessarily worried about that. So it's just, you know, we just get busy, rush, rush off to work. And the, the biological definition of that reversal is simply having more of our food at night. So the, the high carb, high protein breakfast, this, you know, some studies, and I've, I've quoted studies that show just by increasing the, the amount of breakfast you have with quality, clean food, specifically making sure you're meeting a protein threshold. I've seen studies that show with, with unstructured eating after that, uh, the average person just naturally eats 400 calories less per day. And, and they brought this up and they said, again, tied to that circadian rhythm tied to the hypothalamus. That's typically because when you get that, that extra, you know, food in the morning, it triggers your body, your hypothalamus to say, okay, we've got it. We got fed for the day. We can tamp down hunger. And, you know, that's just part of, of, you know, how we have moved through the last couple million years. Um, some of some studies have looked at <clears throat> one meal a day and two meal a day type isocaloric studies to see if we shift times around very similar to this observational study, what would happen. And uh, they, they again show that eating more of your food in the morning increased weight loss. Uh, they've even shown this with shift workers. People can get the exact same amount of sleep. They can have the same amount of calories. They can even do as well as they can by replicating, like, like when you wake up, you eat your biggest meal, but with a shift worker working night, that means, you know, it's again, you're, you're eating at, at a different time of the day that's counter to that evolutionary physiology. So they've shown even by doing everything the exact same way in third shift workers, they have a higher risk of obesity, diabetes, and so forth because of that metabolic disruption. So as I mentioned, we, we have to consider, is this going just against our genetics or is it that we're forcing it because of our dietary changes? And I, and I, I think I made that case pretty clear that especially with the, the genes, the gene expression that links obesity to this, it's the fact that we are expressing that we're forcing it because we are reversing that, uh, that circadian rhythm. Um, the slightly larger breakfast, this, this could also be a pivot point. So again, causality, is it that the lunch was the hinge? It was the pivot point, or was it the fact that just having a more consistent larger breakfast meant that those people ate a little bit earlier lunch, and then they ended up, you know, just losing more body fat that would again, correlate to natural metabolic rhythms where your body, your, your, you know, quote, hunter gatherer, you wake up, you get your food, you have that bigger meal that kind of gets you rolling metabolically. So then you have another meal and then you kind of titrate down after that. So, uh, one of the interesting things was that the circadian rhythm, uh, that has impact on hormones. Typically this study was randomized so well that again, there wasn't any real association. So when they looked at, uh, ghrelin and leptin, and they tried to see, well, maybe these people who had lost 22% more body fat, maybe it was really having this impact on ghrelin because it has been shown in other studies. 
They just didn't show that to be much of a factor. And I think it was because it was so subtle. You know, these people ate such similar amounts of food, you know, total calories per day, even down to the percentages of macronutrients, that I think that's why uh, it was, you know, again, over time, if you remember that, that weight loss, you saw they start out about the same and then it starts to split apart a little bit. To me, that's a really telling graph because it shows that over time, your body almost just gets better at losing body fat. That, that, that gap was probably going to continue if you went out another five months or 10 months. So, so what's truly happening there? You didn't have massive shocks. You didn't have a control study in a, in a study group that were you know, just doing such completely different things. It was just this one little shift in the timing and it creates that subtle change, which probably means those people weren't feeling more hunger. You know, they would, they would have increased ghrelin if that's the fact. Um, but insulin was correlated. So, so now you're gradually decreasing your chance of type two diabetes, metabolic syndrome, simply because you're, you're using glucose more efficiently. That's where glucose dis disposal comes in. So, I just think this is a study that really shows the power of working with your body, working with your hypothalamus and these circadian rhythms. And you don't have to change that much. Again, this wasn't like a high carb, low carb study. It wasn't this many calories versus baseline calories. It was, it was just, it's one of the most remarkable things that I have seen in terms of studying uh, a study model that's so different than other ones I've seen. But again, this is not a, one-off type topic. There are tons of meta-analyses that talk about this. This is not something that's new. Uh, some of these things are being looked at again. I think this meta-analysis, matter of fact, yes, it was from, from just a few months ago, 2021. Um, and in this particular meta-analysis just reinforced everything I went over. The fact that yes, there's some controversy, but most studies do show this difference, this improvement. And then, as I said, this particular group, so also from Spain, they reproduced this study almost identically, but with severely obese patients after bariatric surgery, and they showed the exact same thing. So now they decided, okay, this was just kind of a broad swath of people. We got these 420 people just from all of our clinics. Now let's look at a very severely isolated study group and see if we can, in a microcosm, get the same results. And they actually did. So let's, uh, let me stop sharing this, pull you guys back up here. I see some, uh, some questions in the chat box, start rolling with those. Uh, what about the time between meals? Um, Stacy, that is something, I mean, obviously it's, it, it, I looked, I dug and dug and dug through this study because what I wanted to see was the standard deviation of the lunch because they made such a big deal about lunch being either before three or after three. I kind of wanted to see how that would skew out. Like if you ate at noon versus one or noon versus two, uh, they just have that. Uh, it's probably in their notes somewhere, well, but you are correct that that's, that's a factor. You know, if you're eating at nine and then at, you know, two or three or after three, you know, that's a factor. Um, but again, 420 people, that well randomized and yet everybody had the same. So it's not like that. That's not what they were studying. They weren't studying time between meals. My, my, and, and the fact that everybody was eating consistently, like their, 
they had a 12 hour window almost between breakfast and dinner. Mm -hmm. Which is a nice observation, but it's not part of the study. So because they're not, they're not, they're not saying does this calorie level or does the Mediterranean diet cause more weight loss than something else? So you're right. They, they lost a modest amount of body fat in five months. Um, but that's not what they were studying. They were just studying, you know, time of day. Because this contradicts everything that the Cleveland Clinic says. Uh, why? Because they want uh, meals uh, sun up between sun up and sundown. Nothing late. And they have a whole entire wellness program built around that. That's not what this was studying. They weren't comparing the Cleveland Clinic to this diet or eating only during the day. They were studying just, this is an observational study. So with this group of Europeans, here's the amount of food you're going to eat. Go eat however you want. We're going to analyze the data when we get back. If somebody had eaten this way with this calorie distribution and they started eating three hours early, I, I agree that they probably would have lost more weight. That's just not what the study was about. Well, and, and, and like Europeans have a different lifestyle than we do. Hmm. Yeah. So don't, don't get stuck on that. They're telling you through this study, you should eat this way. This was comparing one thing. Do you eat more of your calories early or late? And they found just be based on the European model, if the average lunch is three in the afternoon, probably better even for Europeans to eat early. So that exactly agrees with the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, Amanda, does meal volume make a difference? Um, that's that's what I thought was interesting that 40% of those calories were at lunch. Um, I said I would relate a couple of my anecdotal stories. The very first bodybuilding contest I ever did, and I had no idea what I was doing. I was 20 years old, just reading Flex magazine. For some reason, I don't even know what article or what author, I, I was waking up at 5 a.m. to go to work. I remember I had to be there at 6. I got off at 2. At 2 o'clock in the afternoon, that was my last meal of the day. I was doing a 16 hour fasting window without even knowing that was a thing or was to become a thing. And I would actually go train and not even have a post-workout meal. It's just, I would have my biggest meal at two, go to the gym and train, would not eat again until five or six the next morning. So I was having most of my food in the morning with a really big fasting window I didn't look great. I lost, I was, I was the leanest I've ever been. And I definitely lost a lot of muscle, but I don't even know if that's true. Cause at, at 20 years old, I didn't have a lot of muscle. Um, but subsequently having repeated that with a little bit more moderation, I have found that as we always say, you know, try, try to go to bed with the least amount of insulin production possible. So you're going to go to bed, you know, with, with, if you're going to have anything in your stomach, it's probably just going to be protein, maybe even better to not go to bed for a couple of hours after eating your last meal, even if it's just protein. Every time I have abided by those kinds of standards, I always got leaner and it was easier. And I will say with tens of thousands of clients over 30 years, 
when somebody's struggling with hunger and overeating, and, and especially those who are having to consume a pretty low amount of calories because of their, their metabolism, and we just load up the beginning of the day, it just seems to work better. And so I, I think even 40% of calories at lunch is not going to be the, the winning stat. It might be eating 40% of your calories just maybe before noon. And, and I'll tell you what I'm doing now. And it's very ironic that I've just kind of settled on this as my current eating pattern. Um, I, I don't eat until seven in the morning, even though I wake up at four, but then I have a pretty good sized meal. It's about two thirds of a cup of oatmeal, scoop of protein powder, some fruit. So I'm probably getting 70, 75 grams of carbs, 30, 35 grams of protein, pretty low fat. Then three to four hours later, I have what is my biggest meal today. It's a cup or more of rice, a cup of vegetables, five or six ounces of, of ground turkey. Um, and, and because of that, I just don't even have a pre-workout anymore. So now about two and a half, three hours later, I'm training. I got plenty of energy. I just do a scoop of protein powder after, and then I have dinner, which is kind of modest again. So you look at the timing, I'm probably getting 50% of my calories by 11 a.m. Just between my breakfast and my lunch being my two biggest then it's a small post-workout, then it's a, a modest meal, you know, down at the end of the day. And I do, I just feel better. I mean, my body weight is coming down about a pound a week, very little hunger, if at all. I mean, it just, it's my cue to eat my next meal. So, you know, I just, you know, some of those anecdotal things is where the rubber meets the road with us personally, because we can look at a study like this and say, yeah, okay, I'll try it. Well, yeah, try it. Like try anything, try, try, try to fit your preferences and your schedule with a change like this and just see if it makes a difference. You know, that's, that's truly the bottom line. Uh, Dan, what were you saying there for lunchtime differences? 9.9 versus 7.7. You must've picked that something yeah. out of a graph there. Yeah, I thought that's what you were looking for. Um, oh. And uh, so, I mean, they, they lost almost four and a half more pounds. Those yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That was it. Yeah. yeah. You're right. So I have a question. Uh -huh. um, so when we first started out the research review, you were talking about like quality of sleep and circadian rhythm having a tremendous effect on weight loss, right? So my question is, is like in this research study, was there, um, did it matter like the quality of sleep or was it just overall hours? Um, you know, I think they really did look at quality. I mean, this, this was a pretty detailed study. So if you looked at the original study and I can, you know, send that, that link through, um, they, they have a massive amount of qualitative analysis as well, but when it came down to the quantitative stuff, because that's, again, if, if there had been some weird outlier, like if, if these people, who had lost less weight if they were only getting four hours of sleep and the other group that lost more was getting seven, you'd have to say, oh, now we have a confounding variable. Like it could be that. It could be this gene that we've found in the body fat cell. It could be the timing of lunch or it could be the sleep. That's why it's so remarkable that for the two groups of 200 and 212 people, you know, even down to sleep, it was almost like just minutes difference as an amortized, you know, 10 month process. So, you know, to, to me, that just cleared out 
any confounding variables. But you're right, as as Stacy's question, it's just not something they had to look at because it didn't stand out as a variable. Um, but you could get in there even deeper with analysis. And this is where, where statistical models really shine because it's it's big data now. You, you pile this stuff into the SSPS or I think that's what it is, you know, software. And in it, it does all these calculations for you. And if there was something that was flagged as a correlation, it would come through. But again, just, just relating it back to Stacy's question, absolutely, if you have better quality sleep and enough of the slow wave sleep, you're, you're going to at least, we know, have less true hunger and you'll have better blood sugar stability. It's just not what they needed to compare here because everybody was so similar. Any other thoughts or question, Kevin? How about you? After looking at this with with all of your understanding of uh, some of the some of the stats, especially with the medical, you know, metabolic syndrome type symptoms. I mean, being an observational study, there's obviously limitations. So none of this is causative. It's only correlation. So take that for a grain of salt, knowing that's a big limitation. You cannot draw inferences and say this is absolute in terms of actual clinical relevance or significant practical clinical uh, application. That's not to say it's not important and to study further, but that's, you know, that's easy for me to say because that is what you know, I'm, I'm a health scientist, but for, for general terms, for, for us as clinicians and coaches to apply this, we have to remember that, that this, that's a huge limitation and therefore walk cautiously when, when applying such things. But to that point, um, there's a lot of good evidence with circadian rhythm disruption and what that implies towards metabolic disadvantages, maybe you would say. Um, it's not to say it's, you know, it's, uh, you're dead in a rut. You can still obviously control sleep or, uh, manipulate that for your benefit, but just because sleep is disruptive doesn't mean that it's a guarantee of weight gain. It just makes the process perhaps far more challenging and or more difficult or a slower rate, whatever it may be, or it leads to a, a, a secolate of consequences or, you know, behaviors that ultimately lead to weight gain. So, um, and that's a core, that's a, that's a correlation, but it's indirect. Um, well, but nonetheless, to your, to your point, if I interrupt for a second, the fact that there's 420 subjects for 10 um, months, you know, that's a lot of that would kind of wash out. So yes, there, I mean, everybody at some point is going to have a bad night's sleep. Everybody at some points, you know, th that 7.3 hours is an average for 10 months. So uh, I think you're exactly right, especially the reminder of the causality, because this is where, as I said, in my introduction and in my post, you know, there are studies you could find that would contradict this to say, well, on an isocaloric study, you can eat any way you want, and you could probably find that you lose the same amount, but there would have to be other variables. Like maybe those people all had a standardized level of exercise. Maybe they all had an exact standardized level of, of food intake goals and percentages and that kind of thing. It just happened to kind of fall that way on this study. But, uh, but again, this is where I, I think it's, it's interesting when it is purely observational because instead of forcing those criteria into subjects, like I said, it's more just a let's observe what's happening in the wild. Mm -hmm. And so that's that, that, just one type of research. 
and it's it's one variable shining through. And as you said, Kevin, it gives us something to say. That's kind of interesting. That that may be a thing, or it may be a thing that's more appropriate for some people than others. Like like I would imagine if you were, you know, an ectomorph or something, uh, you know, and, and as an outlier with within these averages, and you you know you could have been in the group that eats a later lunch, and you still showed just as much body fat loss. So. You know, there are those little things that you could pick apart, but I think it's just that that preponderance of evidence. It's like, wow, they they found a 22% difference with this one pivot point. And so it makes me then again, go back to my anecdotes and say, man, I noticed when I diet that way, it really does seem to be a little bit better. So yeah, I mean, nothing you could say with one study is, bam, we've solved it. You know, everybody should eat this way, but it, it gives us something to, to, inflect a little bit with their own nutrition. It'd be interesting if Andrew was an ectomorph or an endomorph. And when she worked night shift and what that response or yeah, what that response would have been on her body status. Uh, you know, she's an ectomorph, so not a problem there, but I'm sure there's some, I'm sure there has to be some negative consequence metabolically that has occurred or did occur when she was a night shift. And, and just, I mean, there's plenty of evidence to, to, to demonstrate what consequence, consequences do occur. And I'm sure it's related to circadian rhythm disruption and all of which this is, you know, validating, or at least, you know, providing some, some crude evidence of, you know, there's something to this. Um, but yeah. And I think it would come back to that gene expression, you know, cause I, I too have spent I don't know, six month blocks at a time, like was on, I was in the military, I'd work nights at times. And even when I was in college, I would work nights at times. And I remember feeling awful, but I didn't, I didn't know enough to see like, wow, am I eating more or getting body fat? That would just have no way of knowing, but all right, guys, well, there you have it. Just one piece of the pie in terms of meal timing. And I, I will be gone next Friday. So uh, we're going to be doing some staff training at our new uh, diet doc fit lab in Fairmont, West Virginia. But, um, in the, in that week or two following that, I want to look at some bigger pieces of this because this is certainly not all there is with, with meal timing. Uh, there are studies now that we can start looking at, uh, as Stacy and, and Amanda mentioned, um, you know, how, what, what about meal timing? What about having one meal a day versus two versus six? We've touched on that in terms of fasting and, and things like that but to look at a more isocaloric type structure and, and see if we can pick apart even better ways. I mean, I, th I think what we found out today is a, you know, try not to work night shifts if you can avoid it and B, you know, get, just get more of your food in that first half of the day and see if it really does help with, you know, and, and it does, it, it kind of overlaps with the intermittent fasting or the time restricted feeding uh, information we've been hearing about which again, if you were here Monday and Wednesday, you know that we talked about the fact that even an eight hour fasting window at night, which means you have 16 hours of feeding, but the same calories, eight is important. Some people don't get that. You tend to get the most value when you hit about 12, 16 is okay, but it's not as necessary. 12 seems to be that sweet spot. So, so we're going to dig into some more details here. This just at least gets us into the, the mindset that we can shift calories more to the front because a lot of people, because of this time restricted feeding craze we're in, 
have said, I ah, just eat one or two meals a day. It doesn't matter. And yeah, breakfast isn't that important. You can eat your biggest meal later. You know, matter of fact, matter of fact, skipping breakfast is good. That's what time restricted feeding or intermittent fasting is supposed to be. It's like, let's just skip breakfast and not eat until noon. Then we'll eat three meals, noon, afternoon, and then like eight o'clock at night. And then that'll be our eight hour window. Well, if we compared that to shifting it to the first half of the day, I think we'd have another good answer. So I'm going to look for all that kind of stuff for our next couple of sessions.